Hello and welcome to this episode of our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aquaria. We're honored to have as our guest today, noted author and director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard, Daniel Allen. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. In your most recent book, Our Declaration, which the New York Review of Books called a tour de force, which has to be uh, a nice compliment. <laughs> it's nice to hear something like that. It's true. That's not, not what you always hear, so it was a pleasure. Right. Um, you set out to kind of write a study of the Declaration of Independence that would be accessible mm. to as wide an audience as possible, as opposed to maybe just academics, which a lot of previous works are. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I think you succeeded. Uh, everybody in our office absolutely oh, devoured the book. I we, appreciate that. We very much enjoy it. So thank you again, Professor Allen, so much for taking time to talk to us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. I love talking about the Declaration of Independence. It's one of my favorite things. I had great experiences teaching the Declaration, and the book really came out of that experience. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, let's send a softball question. Have you seen the Declaration of Independence? <laughs> uh, I've been to the National Archives, so I have seen that particular parchment, which was the one that folks signed. I think right. it's important, though, to say that there are several declarations of independence. The broadsides. Um, they're the broadsides that John Dunlap printed on order of Congress. Those were the real July 4th documents mm -hmm. and the ones that got sent to the troops and sent abroad. There's also the official record in Congress's minute book mm -hmm. um, that Charles Thompson inscribed in the record as secretary to Congress. Um, and then, actually, in January of 1777, Congress commissioned a printer named Mary Catherine Goddard mm -hmm. to produce 13 broadsides, uh, one for each now state capital. Um, so in that regard, they're really sort of four official copies of the Declaration. How many of those broadsides survive? Are they all still in existence, or have we lost some? We do not have all of the Dunlap broadsides. Um, so there were originally about some 300, and um, there are in the tens, I think, currently in existence. I don't know okay. the exact number. Um, for the Mary Catherine Goddard one, that's a good question. I don't actually know the answer to that. One would think that all 13 of them still exist because they were given Hopefully to each state capital. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I would have to check that. That's a great question. So thank you. I'll go look into it. All right, cool. I have a little more research for you to do. <laughs> um, so in the, in the book in particular, um, when I was reading the introduction, you said something that really kind of caught my imagination. So I was hoping I could ask about it. Sort of a bold assertion that both political parties today have essentially abandoned the declaration um, in regards to the ideas of equality. Mm. And I think um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a politician who wouldn't give at least lip service to the idea of equality and the fact that they, oh, you know, certainly we support equality, we're not for inequality, that wouldn't make a lot of sense for a politician to say. Um, so what are, what are some examples that you've been seeing lately on both sides that might indicate that they are sort of moving away from the ideas of equality in the Declaration? Sure. Well, I mean, it's true that you wouldn't really find a politician who says, oh, I'm for inequality. Right. Um, but what you do find is politicians who either don't, in fact, invoke equality or don't know how to think about equality in particularly subtle or careful ways. Mm -hmm. So as an example of the former I remember watching an interview with Paul Ryan um, during the 2016 Republican convention when he was asked to name his core principles. And he sort of held his fingers up and started ticking things off. And he mm -hmm. said, liberty, freedom, free enterprise, self-determination. No equality. No, no equality, exactly. But four different synonyms for liberty, right? right? Yeah. Um, and then government by consent, constitution, and upward mobility. So that was his cluster. No equality at all, but right. again, several ways of saying freedom. Um, on the Democratic side of the balance, it's, they're certainly um, likely to um, 
sort of exhort against inequality, but mm -hmm. then have a very hard time articulating what we should be for. Right. Um, and the reason they then have a hard time articulating what we should be for is because I think on the democratic side of the picture, the concept of equality has sort of narrowed over time um, to focus primarily on material questions, economic distribution. Economic, yeah. Exactly. And the really important thing about the concept of equality is that it has many variants. So mm -hmm. there's basic human moral equality, a question of human dignity and how we respect that. There's a question about political equality and how we actually build a society where all citizens do experience egalitarian empowerment in relationship to collective decision making. There's social equality. There is a question of economic egalitarianism and so forth. Um, and so I've been really, I think, trying to spend my time getting people to um, remember that equality and freedom work together like hand and glove. Um, mm -hmm. If you want freedom for all, and that also requires that no one be dominated by anybody else, right. and to avoid domination is to pursue equality, and in particular to pursue political equality. So I've been trying to sort of reunite these concepts and to in get people sort of thinking about, well, okay, how does political equality connect to economic questions? How does all of this relate to social equality? To see if we can have a more interesting conversation about these different aspects of the concept. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and bringing, bringing in liberty and equality and the fact that you, you, you need both of them. Um, exactly. I think it's interesting to remember that when Jefferson and the Committee of Five presented his first draft of the Declaration, uh, the uh, 28th of June mm. um, document, there was a very lengthy passage which rather famously did not make it into the final version in which, along with many other grievances against King George, mm -hmm. why we legally were saying we could you know, separate ourselves, one of the main ones was slavery and the fact right. that the, the British Empire at the time was a slave empire, an empire that allowed it, he called it a cruel war against human nature itself. Mm -hmm. It's difficult, it, it, it seems like it would be difficult to hold up the Declaration of Independence as a document that is very much in favor of equality despite the, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal when this incredibly important passage was intentionally removed that resulted in the disenfranchisement of an entire group of people. So is there sort of a struggle there to say that the Declaration is about equality, yet we, we didn't deal with the slave question? So there are a lot of different parts to your question. I know, it's a sorry, super, I went no, on sorry, forever. That's all right. It's a super important question. So on the one hand, you're asking a question about the ideas in the Declaration, and are they genuinely ideas about equality and then there's a sort of second question about the relationship between those ideals of equality and the actual practices of racial domination in the US and mm -hmm. how do we think about these things in relationship to each other and um, it's a super interesting question that I think requires recognizing a few things mm -hmm. the first is that this country has always had multiple traditions we sometimes think is when we sort of uh, conjure up the concept of originalism, that there was a sort of one thing that everybody thought at the very beginning. That's not the case. Right. Um, they were able to get started because they achieved what philosophers call an overlapping consensus, mm -hmm. which means that they were willing to sign on to the same documents, but for different reasons. Right. So that committee of five that drafted the declaration um, with alongside the four alongside Jefferson included people who thought slavery was a bad thing and mm -hmm. were against slavery, as well as people like Jefferson who thought that slavery was problematic, but couldn't quite think his way out of it, um, and also in various ways profited from it. Had his own personal Absolutely. struggles with it. Absolutely, yeah. completely. Um, so the point is just that 
the Declaration has these two tra traditions in it, and it has compromises in it. And there, it has pro-slavery compromises, which is that excision of the passage where Jefferson does talk about the sacred rights of life and liberty for the distant people in Africa. But then there are also anti-slavery moments. So the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mm -hmm. was an anti-slavery moment. So John Adams had been arguing for happiness as the key organizing concept. Right. Um, that term replaced property. By the spring of 1776, property had been very closely connected to the slave interest. So to defend property rights by the spring of 1776 was to defend slavery. Right. So in keeping property out of the Declaration, the anti-slavery people were actually making room for abolitionism. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the first people to make use of the Declaration for a next phase of politics were abolitionists. Mm -hmm. So by January of 1777, the free African-American in Boston named Prince Hall mm -hmm. was using the language of the Declaration to submit a petition to the Massachusetts Assembly to end slavery. Saying, we, we deserve the things that are in the Declaration. Correct, exactly. Yes, and um, you know, sort of invoking the principles of the Declaration, invoking social contract theory to make, in order to make the case for an end to slavery. And slavery was ended in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Vermont by the early 1780s. Mm -hmm. So that abolitionist tradition comes out of the Declaration just as much as there were slave owners who signed on and endorsed it. And so we have to recognize that both of those things are there. So in terms of just the concepts themselves, the ideas, I think the interesting thing here, and it's one that we still all have trouble wrestling with, is that even some of the slave owners, Jefferson in particular, I have in mind, uh, genuinely actually meant this point about human equality. So mm -hmm. the people who were against slavery definitely meant it. Okay, that's sort of easy, like right. John Adams yeah. and Ben Franklin. Um, but then what about Jefferson? And so Jefferson's sort of strange way of thinking these things through was to think that, yes, all people are created equal, and actually all people do deserve the right to self-government and so forth. Um, he just didn't think black and white people should have that at the same time in the same place. Right. So he was perfectly fine with the notion that Africans should go back to Africa right. and Send have their separate but equal society there. Right. And so that really is, I think, in Jefferson's line of reasoning, the origins of our separate but equal mm -hmm. tradition in the U.S. So you have these two different traditions there at the beginning, a genuinely egalitarian tradition that is ready for abolition and ready for integration and starting to think about what it means to have a multiracial uh, community of free and equal self-governing citizens. That's one tradition. And the other tradition is the Jeffersonian one that really right at that very beginning point introduces a sort of separate but equal conception of what human life requires for flourishing. So it kind of leads into another one of my questions, which is um, who the Declaration was written for. Um, and so my, 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 my concept is sort of that the Declaration was not just written for people in this country. Mm. It was, it, to a certain extent, written to, for the people in France. Mm -hmm. It was an attempt to bring other people you know, in favor of our revolution to say that this is legal, we're allowed to do this. Uh, of course, no, as far as I know, colony had ever broken free of the you know, mother state ever. So it was very much a, a new concept. And the only way we were going to get allies was to say, we deserve this. This mm -hmm. is important. So was was it written only for us, or do you would you agree that it was written sort of for the world at large as well? It was definitely written for both audiences, and in some sense, you can know that just from what Congress chose to do when the uh, resolution for independence was first introduced in Congress in the beginning of June, seventeen seventy six. So when Richard Henry Lee stands up and introduces the resolution, Congress decides it's not ready to vote because they want to be unanimous, and they know they're not going to be unanimous quite yet. So they postpone the vote, but they set up three committees. They set up a committee that has the job of drafting the principles that will explain the vote, 
that committee produces what we now call the Declaration of Independence. Then they set up a committee that had the job of drafting the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. And then they set up a committee that had the job of drafting treaties uh, for France and Spain. So the statement of principles had to justify both the Articles of Confederation and the treaties with France and Spain. Um, And then the actual resolution of independence is a sort of linchpin holding this cluster of pieces of work together. You have to think of it as like a work package, all of these things together. Um, And so those choices, the committees they set up, tell you exactly who their audience was. It was the domestic audience um, who needed to sign on to the Articles of Confederation and form a governing structure together. And it was the audience of foreign heads of state whom they hoped to have alliances with and from whom they hoped to have resources to help them fight the war against Britain. So a global audience in that regard. Yeah, I think um, especially in today's age, we, we tend to look at the Declaration as a purely American document written by Americans that lays out our values. Mm. And I think we forget that it was a very global document as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So. And it has a global history. I mean, it's been copied all over the world hundreds of times in incredible range of countries, as David Armitage, a scholar, has pointed out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to ask a few more sort of history Uh, questions relating to the Declaration. I guess the first one that I want to ask is, um, is this a case of might making right with the Declaration? And so the idea is that if we had lost the war, do you think the Declaration would would still hold the significance and the value that it has today? Or even, for example, let's say King George had read the Declaration of Independence and said, okay, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Boy, you guys really know what you're talking about. Um, absolutely, you can uh, go ahead and be your own country. Do you think we would still revere it as much as we do without having the struggle, the war, the heroes in you know, Washington and the Founding Fathers signing a document at the threat of their own life? Well, I'm sure we would not revere it in the same way, but there's a separate question of whether it would still have anything worthy of reverence in it. Mm-hmm. Um, And the answer to that question is yes. So there's no question but that the document has practical significance because it motivated a revolution, it uh, established the status of a new country sort of among sovereign states on the globe, Um, and then there was a war fought to secure its principles and um, concretize the commitments. So that practical significance, without any doubt, um, is tethered to the events. Um, But the document has philosophical significance. It has intrinsic philosophical merit um, that stands on its own terms. So even if we had lost or had there been no war, it's still the case that the Declaration innovates within the philosophical tradition. And it innovates in a very specific way. There are two pieces of the innovation. Um, It's really one of the first documents to articulate the view that every human being is best situated to make judgments for him or herself about the direction of that person's happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, So to really ground um, practical uh, human politics in the decisions ordinary people make about their own futures. So there are versions of that idea in earlier philosophers, but um, to connect it as concretely as they do to judgments about happiness um, is the real uh, philosophical contribution. And it gets picked up by people like Mill, uh, John Stuart Mill in the middle of the 19th century. A lot of his, you know, the utilitarian direction that he takes the concept um, is a direct outgrowth of sort of philosophical innovation in the Declaration. Um, and then the second thing, the second innovation that it offers, um, once you have that, that 
key idea that ordinary human judgment suffices to set a direction for a polity, then the second innovation is to recognize that that means the polity has to revise itself over and over and over again, that every generation has the job of judging whether or not the thing it's built together, its political institutions, are securing its rights. And so it's that sort of continually revisionist nature of democratic politics that is the second philosophical contribution of the Declaration of Independence, not really present in the philosophical literature previously. Right. And those two points, for those alone, that text would stand forever alongside the greatest text in political philosophy, even if there had been no war, even if it had had no practical significance. Let me ask you this, and I know it's going to be a... Uh a sort of a sharp, loaded question, but does the Declaration of Independence then give us the right to change our government if we feel that we need to do that? It's not the Declaration of Independence that gives us that right, it's nature, nature that gives right. us that well, right. Sort of Absolutely, yeah. yeah, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish. Um, and where does that right come from? That right comes from the fact that there is no human being so situated as to be a better judge of any given person's future than that person, him or herself. Isn't that sort of an argument for direct democracy then, that we should all have our own individual vote as opposed to sort of a representational democracy like we have? I wouldn't say so. I mean, it's an argument for self-government. And then the question of what form self-government should take is a question of practical execution rather than a question of what the purpose of the thing is. So the, obviously, the, so the founders wrestled with this question, right? I mean, having anchored the whole thing in this project of judgment by ordinary people, they then started with the Articles of Confederation, which was a kind of you know, loosey-goosey structure, yeah, and Pennsylvania had exactly <laughs> pretty close to direct democracy constitution, so they had a lot of experiments with things that were a lot closer to direct democracy, and so they could really figure out, well, does this mechanism actually deliver a durable structure through which people can steer the collective ship of state together. And their, then their sort of practical discovery was that direct democracy could not deliver that on scale, so you have to invent other mechanisms that do actually permit ordinary people to, to steer the ship of state. And that's where we get the sort of really concrete versions of representation, um, real advances on the concepts of separation of powers and checks and balances and so forth um, to give us something that we the people can steer. Okay. So, um, to, with the Declaration of Independence, it, it obviously um, indicates that we should, we're, we're the best people when it comes to deciding what makes us happy and the way that we want to live right. our lives. That doesn't mean we're good at it, though. Right, let me, no, let no. Me just <laughs> clarify. I, can, I, I imagine, yeah. Nobody's, exactly better, right. no, nobody's any better than any of us than we are for ourselves, but that doesn't also mean that we're actually good at it. We're also humans <laughs> and tend to sometimes be a little That's bit right. stupid. Exactly. We have all <laughs> kinds of limitations. Yes, but, uh, very much so. Um, at the same time, it, let's say, for example, in, it, with, the, with the Declaration of Independence being a really good example because they did want that unanimity. They, they were not going to um, force any state to break loose of Britain against its will. They were not going to drag anybody. It had to be unanimous. But at the same time, obviously, there were a great number of colonists at the time who were loyalists, who um, were even members of the uh, Constitutional Convention who were loyalists and favored reconciliation with the crown. C couldn't you say that they were still the best judges of their happiness, but they were not allowed to go out and get it? Um, so they were really in the sense that by the point of voting on the declaration and achieving uni unanimity and then coming to sign it, um, those who weren't ready to go along had left. 
um, they departed, they went to Britain. So there's an economist named Albert Hirschman who has produced a very helpful kind of modern version of social contract theory um, that uses the concepts of exit, voice, and loyalty to really mm -hmm. conceptualize what a sort of social contract is about. And the idea is that when uh, groups form, um, there has to be a reason for any person to be a member of that group. And so then the problem of sort of what social contract theory is really about is that moment of uh, when something emerges where it's no longer in your best interest to be part of the group. And then the question is, what do you do? Um, do you maintain your loyalty to the group um, because you have sort of commitment to the project and exercise voice um, internally as a dissenter, um, or do you exit? Um, and so as we see people exercising an exit option or a loyalty option and using voice, um, what we see is exactly that people pursuing their happiness. So the point is just that um, the loyalists exited. Um, that's how they pursued their happiness at that moment of the formation of a social contract. Is there an argument, obviously there is because I'm about to make it, but is there an argument that could be made that uh, since I'm the person who's best suited to judge my own happiness and determine what I need in order to live a happy, healthy life, that really we should just have anarchy and each person should do that for themselves without the constraints of law that might force them into situations where they're not doing something that makes them happy. So I would say there's not a very good argument for that. Okay, there you go. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> Sorry, it. Sorry, I apologize. No, 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 please, please. <laughs> um, no, I mean, in some sense, for a reason that you already pointed to, which is that, okay, so what's the first condition for pursuing happiness? It is having freedom to do that. Um, in some sense, you're then taking that idea to suggest, well, then should we have, we should have complete unconstrained yeah, circumstances, anarchy. However, anarchy isn't freedom, right? For the very obvious reason that in order to have sufficient freedom, to have a sphere, for each of us to have a sphere of operation, we actually have to protect ourselves from mm -hmm. domination by other people. Right. And that's the job of the rule of law. Mm -hmm. um, so no, anarchy does not deliver freedom. It delivers domination of some by others. Right. Um, in order to have freedom, you have to ensure that nobody is dominated by anybody else. And that means you need a structure of rule of law that delivers equality alongside freedom. That's how you get freedom for all. Otherwise, anarchy delivers only freedom for some. Okay, excellent. That'll that'll hopefully help my anarchist friends. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I have I have um, one more distinct question. That it's sort of a hypothetical, so I hope you'll bear with me here. But let's let me ask you if okay, we won the war and we broke away from Britain um, using our declaration, which was uh, obviously a compromise and left the question of slavery for future generations to decide. By winning that war and adopting our declaration, didn't we in fact damage our position on equality? Because if we had stayed with Britain, obviously we would have had uh, emancipation for uh, the slaves decades before we ever got in America. And without the um, difficulty and trauma of the Civil War, William Wilberforce in the uh, 1830s, which is you know 30 years before the Civil War was Don't forget fought. Prince Hall, 1777, right. 1780 in Boston, right. Massachusetts. And, and, anyway. And, 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 and you know, especially the northern states had at that time abolished slavery, and that, of course, is the lead up and the reason for the Civil War, the fact that the southern states were unwilling to give up the slaves, and the northern states mm. had that tradition and yep. saw that it was essential for emancipation and freedom. But if, if we had simply stayed subjects of the crown, we could have had it 30 years, like universally for our colony, we could have had it 30 years earlier. So it's funny, I spent a lot of time thinking about that question actually, but oh, I'm, gonna, really? I'm gonna tell you the story of how I came to think about that question. 
So I've spent some time working on um, gamifying the Declaration of Independence, turning it into a video game. Oh, excellent. I, it's been a lot of fun, so This will actually. be a lot of fun. When it's done, please send me a copy. I will I'll send you. It. You can send it. We've got it now. We've got the first pilot version. I'll send it to you. Oh, awesome. That'd be great. Um, but basically, when we started working on the game, the first question that the sort of game designer put to me was, well, he said, I think we should set it in a sort of dystopian future, the, you know, the kind of place where if the Declaration had never happened, what would the world be like? And then our character can go back and try to make the decoration happen to avoid that dystopia. Be better, right? Exactly. So I sort of spent, you know, I went away to like scratch my head to try to like sketch out this dystopian society that would have existed if the decoration hadn't happened. And then I realized we know exactly what it would be like. It would be Canada. Yeah, it'd be Canada. <laughs> exactly. It'd be a very number it would of be very Canada. people would with be awesome. coffee and donuts. Exactly. And be, yeah, it'd be That's great. That's right. So, so I thought, you know, this dystopian question doesn't exactly work. And, right. you know, the, the first thought was, well, the, the slavery question, exactly. Britain emancipated or ended slavery um, earlier than the United States did. But then I realized, because you see, these things are always dialectical, right? Mm. Why was Britain able to do that? Because it had lost the slave interest. Oh, that's true. They because didn't. of the revolution. Right. The revolution made it possible for Britain to abolish slavery. And that actually helped the abolitionist movement everywhere. Mm -hmm. So in a funny way, it was actually by shrinking the amount of space the slave interest was affecting mm -hmm. that the dynamics of abolition really got going. So it's like we were the unlucky ones because we got stuck yeah, we with the stuck slave interest. Right. Yeah, and then we had to do the same thing. We had to once again, more or less, isolate the slave interest and cut it off. And that's what happened with the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And then the hard project of this country has been that then in Reconstruction, which was a sort of effort to really you know, eliminate the slave interest, mm -hmm. failed at some level. Yeah. Not completely, because obviously our world is not one where the slave interest is still alive. Right. Um, nonetheless, well, we certainly do not have equality the way that yeah, um, exactly. the Declaration would have wanted. We haven't overcome our history. We have not achieved a sort of genuine uh, kind of philanthropic spirit for all of us, amongst all of us throughout the whole of the country. Um, and so I think we're still struggling with that. But I think to some extent, um, the lesson of seeing that kind of progressive relationship of the parts to one another is that the goal has to be to maximize the amount of space that does embrace a concept of egalitarian fellowship across boundaries of race and religion and difference and so forth, and really sort of to contain, to minimize the space where there is room for an inegalitarian conception. Um, I think that's how the, how, what the movement of progress has been consistently over time, and I think it's not really any different now. All right, I have one last question that isn't about the Declaration, but you, you mentioned it, so now I want to ask it. <laughs> If Lincoln had lived and been able to oversee Reconstruction, do you think we'd be in a better position than we are today? Yes. Okay. Thank <laughs> you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the fun conversation. This has been Beyond Deporia. Our guest today has been Daniel Allen. Once again, thank you so much for taking time. And Pleasure. We look forward to hearing your talk. Thanks you so much. Take Thanks. Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hallenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The center is inspired by Ralph Hallenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gbsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.